Good morning, guys. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is February 4th. That means we are nine days away from the Arizona elk and antelope application deadline. Make sure that you get your applications in online and on time. I don't recommend waiting to the last day. Uh, probably over the next week, make sure you get it done. Uh, this is going to be a great episode with Jeff Lester of Hunt Hard Outfitters. We're going to be talking specifically about Unit 1 and Unit 27. And uh, Jeff brings a great uh, perspective uh, for those units, being an outfitter born and raised up there in that uh, in that area. And um, if you guys have any questions in, in regards to the draw, uh, for Arizona, feel free to send me an email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Also on Instagram, at jscottoutdoors, you can send me a direct message. I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank the title sponsor, GoHunt.com Insider, and remind you guys that you can use the jscott promo code when signing up for the GoHunt Insider Use the J. Scott promo code, and that is going to get you a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card. And Go Hunt Insider has recently released the most accurate draw odds for all the Western states. And we've been going over Arizona specifically. And if you use the J. Scott promo code, you're going to get that $50 discount, but you're also going to be uh, have full access to the Insider. And it is the best Western hunting resource out there. And you can research all the different units. You can go through all the specific and very accurate draw odds, the harvest statistics, and break down each unit and figure out which one's best for you. I want to thank GoHunt.com for their sponsorship. All you got to do is go to GoHunt.com, go to the Insider, Click join now and use the J. Scott promo code. I want to thank you guys for that. Uh, also, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting uh, just finished up the Safari Club International show. This coming week, uh, all of my sponsors, including Kuyu, are going to be at the Western Hunting Expo in Salt Lake City. I will be there as well on Friday and Saturday walking around. Uh, love to... Um, uh, meet you guys. Uh, if you see me, uh, uh, say hi, and uh, let's uh, let's hook up. So uh, I want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Jason Harrison and his crew uh, create the best ultralight hunting gear on the market today. Uh, Dar and I use it on all of our hunts. Uh, if you have any questions about the gear, uh, let me know. I'm happy to meet you over at the Kuyu booth and go over some things that I like. Uh, and I want to thank Kuyu for their sponsorship of this podcast. Also, PhoneScope, use the JScott16 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all PhoneScope products. So whether it be the website, PhoneScope.com, uh, or if you're at these shows, if you use the JScott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount on all of these PhoneScope products. As you know, all of the videos on my Instagram page uh, are taken with the PhoneScope adapter, and PhoneScope is able to take any spotting scope or binocular and adapt it to any phone, and you'll be taking photos and videos immediately. And last but not least, sponsoring this podcast is the Outdoorsman's, the Optics Authority. 
they're located in Arizona. Uh, if you have any optics needs, uh, they, they make unbelievable tripods, backpacks, and, and other gear. If you use the J. Scott promo code with the Outdoorsman's, uh, either on outdoorsmans.com or by calling 1-800-291-8065, uh, you're going to get a 10% discount just by using my name, J. Scott. Uh, go by and see the sponsors at the show. Tell them you listen to the podcast. Uh, that helps me out, and uh, that lets them know that you guys are hearing the message loud and clear. Let's get right to this episode with Jeff Lester of Hunt Hard Outfitters. I want to thank him for coming on and sharing his expertise. And guys, don't forget, February 13th, the deadline for Arizona. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a friend of friend of mine, a friend of the podcast, Jeff Lester of Hunt Hard Outfitters. Uh, Jeff resides over in the eastern part of Arizona, born and raised over there in, in uh, the Eager Springerville area. Jeff, how you doing? Great. Jay, how are you doing? Good. Um, just got back from Mexico, uh, cooster hunting. I saw that you were down there doing a little hunting yourself. Yeah, I uh, went down there with a group of friends, and uh, we hunted some ranches and had a really good hunt. Uh, all killed bucks. I think everybody, we went 100%. Uh, so it was a really good hunt. It was good to get away and get to shoot something for myself every once in a while. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Um, uh, now, were you guys hunting mountain ranches or desert ranches? Were you hunting coos or muleys? What were you hunting? Uh, we were hunting coos deer, um, and we weren't in Sonora. We were in Chihuahua. Okay. And, uh, yeah, really good hunting. Um, you know, just... just uh, I. I I don't know, I guess I passed a really, really good solid buck up. The first buck I glassed out of the bag was a really solid buck, but I think sometimes we get a little greedy. <laughs> and yeah. I should I shouldn't have probably passed that buck up, but I thought I could do better and I ended up killing about my biggest I killed two deer. One of my deer was about one one ten was my biggest deer and it was a nice buck, but uh the other buck was a little bigger. You know in coos deer just a few inches means a lot. It's kinda like antelope. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, one of the things I've hunt I've never hunted uh coos deer in Chihuahua. Uh I've hunted turkey there but never hunted coos. Uh I believe you've hunted both Chihuahua and Sonora. Um yeah. wondering if you if you could compare or contrast uh uh you know Chihuahua to Sonora maybe from a density standpoint, from a you know trophy quality standpoint, from a travel standpoint. I mean, what are your overall thoughts? Um, you know, I would say, you know, in Sonora, I guess you would be in a little more desert terrain than you would be in Chihuahua where we hunted. Um, I'm not going to say one's any better than the other. I mean, deer densities was much, you know, was, was close to the same in, in each, each place. Uh, I found that to... You know, where we hunted in Chihuahua, going in and out seemed a little easier, um, just going through the border and stuff. And not that it was difficult either place, but, I mean, it just it seemed a little quicker. It wasn't as busy in, in the crossing that we went in, and so uh, we were able to get taken care of a little quicker. Um, on trophy potential and quality, um, 
you know, I, I would say it'd be like southern Arizona. It'd be like one unit over the other as long as the ranch yeah. has been managed correctly and, you know, a certain amount of deer hadn't been taken off of it, it was good, you know. So Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, it all comes down to how many deer have been shot. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're talking, you know, unit to unit or if you're talking, you know, in Mexico and you're talking ranch to ranch. I mean, wouldn't you agree, obviously, there's better ranches than others. There's higher density, lower density, but then when it comes down to trophy quality, a lot of it has to do with how much hunting pressure has it gotten, how many bucks have been taken year after year, and, you know, what is left. Would you agree? Oh, I would totally agree with that. You know, the, the group of guys that I go with, so we were hunting basically four ranches, and the amount and size and age class of the deer killed last year compared to this year was a big difference. We all, nobody shot as big a deer as that was shot last year. Yeah. And I had taken away, and I hadn't gone in a couple of years because I was doing a couple of different shows that were when I needed to be down there hunting, and I, I, I'm not doing those shows anymore, so I was able to get my spot back and go. So, um I would definitely say that, you know, it's all about, you know, how many bucks have been taken off each ranch and how that has been managed. Um, well, the ranch that we hunted had a, a lot of country that was not accessible only by foot. And uh, I ended up hiking way back in a couple of places and really got into a lot of deer. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, I'm looking for that you know, 115 plus deer is what I was kind of looking for. I killed a 134 down there four years ago. And I guess that kind of spoiled me on Mexico. You know, I'm looking for that really upper age class deer. And, uh, you know. Well, not only that, wouldn't you agree, Jeff? Not only are you looking for that upper age class, but I mean, you're looking for something that has it all. You're looking for the Shaquille O'Neal of like, you know, you're looking for the anomaly. And, and, and wouldn't you agree that, when you've shot some big bucks, it's kind of like you have to put check yourself a little bit and be like, this isn't just talking like a mature deer. This is talking about not only maturity, but you're talking about, you know, the supermodel of, of coos deer. Like you're looking for the, the, the one and only type of buck. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely, you know, a high, high standard. But the thing about it is, is we know those deer exist. Last year, um, you know, in some of the places we hunted, I, I think out of like half the guys that went, I mean, I think they, they, we shot like six, they shot like six deer over 120. Yeah. And now, of course, that was on, you know, four different ranches out of like 15 guys, you know. Right. Now, this year, nobody, we, nobody killed that monster of a buck. One guy, I think, killed like a 114. I passed a buck that I, 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 now that I've really looked at him, I think he's upwards of pushing 115, um, and I passed that buck uh, just because he had a big frame on him. He, he had short points, but his frame was really, really, you know, good, and he had some a double eye guard and some kickers and just had some extras. You know, the coos deer world, every deer has a different look. You know, one of the deer I shot was only a 100-inch buck while I was down there, but he just had that look, and I looked at him forever. And I just decided to shoot him because he was just a really cool-looking deer. And, you know, I thought, this deer is probably, this is all he's ever going to be. And actually, after I shot him, he was actually a young deer. And uh, yeah. I really thought he was an older buck. But 
kind of a mistake on my part. Um, and I looked at him too long. You know how it is when you're hunting. You know, <laughs> if, you de- if you decide you don't want something, you need to walk, walk away, away right there. Because if you sit yeah. and look at something long enough, you're going to talk yourself into it. A lot and, of times and I that think happens. You bring, yeah, you bring up a good point that they, and I think it, that's one reason why I like Tuesday so much is like they have their, every buck, no matter the size. Like, I mean, once you get to a, you know, let's say 100 inches, once you get to that 100 inch level, like every 100 inch plus buck has its own unique characteristic. I mean, yeah, you've got your normal three by threes that are cookie cutter, you know, 105, they all look the same. But when you get to that 100-inch mark, you start getting, you know, little kickers. You start getting, you know, droppers. You start getting forks. You start getting, you know, wide, narrow, high, long points, short points, you know, big eye guards, small eye. Like, you're getting a little bit different. I mean, there's, it's almost like there's no two bucks that are the same, and I yeah. think that's one thing that I really like where, you know, mule deer, when you start talking about typical mule deer, I mean, they're pretty much the boxy 4x4 four four frame, pretty pretty similar. It just doesn't seem to have that unique uh, difference in characteristics from rack to rack. And um, pretty cool. Right. I'm glad you had a good hunt down there. Um, how was your rut? We had pretty warm conditions. I mean, I don't know that we ever had frost on our quad seats one, one morning. And, um, you know, obviously... I- well, you know, we, we had really warm conditions, um, really solid rut. Saw a lot of rut action from the first day we were there. I mean, we were... Yeah, we it was consistent, wasn't it? It was like just... Very crazy. consistent. I mean, I'd glass yeah. a doe up, and I told the guys, I said, you see a doe, there's a buck there. Just keep watching. Yeah. And sure enough, uh, every doe would have a buck tinned in it, you know. So if I saw 10 bucks in a day, I saw 10 does. That's kind of how it was. We didn't see a lot of does on the ranches we were hunting. Um, but if we saw 10 bucks, we saw 10 does or or two does and a buck, you know. Every, yeah. you know, and you know how cagey those those deer are. They just really, they tin that doe and uh, don't leave her, you know. And it just, uh, you know, the one buck that I shot, the one 10 buck, I had actually passed him up cruising. He was cruising looking for does. And he was a long ways off, and I put a phone scope on him, and I had videoed him. And then I went back and looked at my video and thought, man, I made a mistake there. I should have probably shot that buck. But I, he was on the move, and I just never could get him to stop to really study him. Well, after I got the phone scope on him, I, I looked at the video that night and thought, man, that deer's pushing 110. And I found him two days later in two canyons over. Of course, he was he was... Uh, with one doe, you know, just tending her, and and uh, so the rut was really consistent. When we left the week after we were there, the rut was really. They said it even picked up more. But I saw great rut activity, and I we I think we went down on the we got in there and started hunting on the sixth. Okay. And so we saw solid rut action, you know, solid rut action. So, uh, what were the drought conditions like, or or range conditions? Um, you know, were water tanks a lot of dry water tanks, or were you in a region that that was okay? Um, it was dry. I'm not going to say it wasn't. And they said they hadn't received any rain other than they had a snowstorm about two or three weeks before we got there. They said they got got really cold and they got some snow on the ranches. But other than that, um, the dirt tanks all had water in them, but they were close to being dry. And then, you know, the uh, the the 
I, I don't even know what they call them down there. It's not like a trick tank, but they they build dams in these deals in these canyons, and then those had water in them, and then they pump yeah. the water to drinkers, you know. I love how so, those old ranchers they they build those concrete dams in all the bottoms of those draws. I mean, if 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 and the ranchers here used to do it too. If they tried to do it today, I mean, there'd be an uproar of you know you can't do that. You can't dam up the water. But I love those old. You know, you just go down there in the bottoms of those canyons, and you know they stagger them every you know mile or so. You'll see a concrete dam, and it's like that's so cool. And you know, yeah, it's pretty neat how they build my, them. Oh, it's really neat. And then they build the pumps on them, and they put the pumps so they can pump the water to the drinkers on top and then gravity feed the drinkers. It's actually a very smart way to conserve water, um, you know, where they're not losing water to, you know, um, you know where it's not soaking in the ground. They're putting them in real rocky, rocky areas and canyons and stuff, and it uh, makes the tank hold a lot more water, of course. So, For sure. Let's dive into... Um what we want to talk about on the podcast is it's good talking about Mexico, but let's get into the meat of what we're going to talk about. And that's, uh, we're staring the Arizona elk and antelope applications here in the face, uh, due February 13th for Arizona. Uh, you obviously guide in Arizona and in New Mexico. Um, but you know, specifically talking about, uh, unit one, and unit 27 are kind of your bread and butter, and feel free to go into any other units. Um, I've had other podcast guests on. We've covered a bunch of units in Arizona. We've actually had, I've had guests on covering 1 and 27, guys that you know and, and um, you know, friends, competitors, et cetera, in the business, but getting everybody's opinion on these units and looking forward, guys that have, you know, points in their pocket, uh, moving forward, looking at, you know, how is this next year going to be, uh, before we dive into the nitty-gritty of 1 and 27, overall, you know, sitting here, you know, the 2nd of February, um, trying to predict the future is obviously hard, but a couple questions, how do the range conditions look, how dry is it, you know, where does it stack up in your mind as someone that's grown up there? Um, you know, what are we looking at? Well, first off, I don't think I've ever, and so I'm 43 years old, and as long as I can remember, I don't ever remember not having, you know, this this could be the worst winter I've ever seen for us in in this area and what I mean by that is we just we just haven't got any moisture I mean we've gotten little a couple of little storms that have you know dumped two or three inches and in the late Arizona hunt we got a pretty good little storm um, but we've had really hot conditions in you know for late I mean yesterday it was 66 degrees here in Springerville and uh, that's just not normal obviously we're you know we're typically in the you know, highs would be our 40s, you know, in the day, and, of course, down to the teens at night or zero. Um, and the mountain, uh, you know, Baldy has a little snow on it. You know, the ski area, Sunrise, you know, I believe they're they're making snow, and other than that, there's, you know, they got a few runs open, but it's not a, it's not a, been a very, you know, good, it's just been, there's just been no, no moisture. And uh, 
when we came up from Mexico, I drove through the Gila by the Gila, and they, they had gotten a pretty good little storm, and the Gila over there had some snow on it. But, I mean, when you get these warm conditions, it melts it off immediately, especially on the south hillside. So all the north hillsides have, you know, might have an inch or a couple inches on them, you know, but nothing that's going to produce runoff. And, you know, of course, our runoff goes into the, you know, into the, uh, into the Salt River, you know, and it eventually ends up down in Roosevelt, you know. So it's, it's really bad right now. Um, but with that said, feed-wise, I think, uh, you know, we got heavy feed. We're a mountainous unit, 1 in 27 and 3A, 3C. You know, we're all in timber country, and the feed is here. Um, you know, as long as these, they can find water, you know, we're not like 9 or 10 or some of these units up north that have to produce, you know, that have tank water, and that's the only place a lot of these elk can drink. We have creeks, we have streams, we have springs. Um, we have a little different water situation than a lot of the northern units. So our elk are going to find the water, they're going to find the feed, Typically, I don't really think it's going to affect our horn growth that much. Where I see the horn growth being affected in our units is typically when we have two years like this in a row. Then you're going to have a problem. Um, when we had the big droughts 10 years ago, you know, where we were having consecutive dry winters and, and, and bad monsoons and all that, we would see that, you know, a lot more. And, and I'm just a believer that it takes a couple of years to really affect the elk, that they're going to find the feed, they're going to find the water. Now, New Mexico, of course, starts to lean more towards those northern Arizona units, which they're a lot of arid units, as well as they have a couple of mountainous units. But we hunt some arid units um, in New Mexico, and same thing goes there. Uh, and in those arid units, you might see that corn growth affected a little more. But these mountainous units, I don't think get get near the pre, you know the elk don't don't get hurt there as bad as they do in these arid units. Okay, so is it possible that we could get some late February, early March, you know, late March, get some of those wet big big snowstorms, and everything be just just fine, or do you think at best it will be average antler growth, average rutting? I mean, get your crystal ball out and tell me. Well, you know, I think I, I think I'm uh, saying there's plenty of feed, but I also am saying, you know, if we if it didn't get any of this late spring, or I mean, early spring moisture, you know, February, March, early early April moisture, what's going to happen? Well, Jay, do you remember last year we got a lot of uh, spring moisture? Mm -hmm. And Arizona, we never get spring moisture, hardly ever. You know, we're always, mm -hmm. you know, in the spring we're typically really dry. Last year we actually got some really good moisture late. And it's almost like these weather patterns for the southwest are off by a month or two. Everything's kind of pushed back. And I've noticed in the last few years that our weather patterns, you know, we've had really hot Octobers and, and, you know, November, we always get, we've been really cold in late November and got some snow in early December and then it's warmed back up and then we've gotten late storms. We got that last year 
we got that the year before. So it'll be interesting to see if we get that. Now, we're in an El Nino year where the jet stream's way north, and I know the entire west is dry right now. I mean, it's, you know, it's Utah, southern Colorado, um, all of New Mexico. Everybody's feeling it right now. Southern, you know, I just came from California. I was over there doing a show, and, you know, driving through the pass in Reno, coming over into Sacramento, Last year there was literally 50 feet of snow, and there's no snow. There's hardly, I mean, there was a couple of feet this year. And, you know, of course they had record amount of snow last year. It was, so it's, with that jet stream being so far north, I mean, we're just dry. Everybody's dry. I mean, I think southern Utah is really, really hurting right now as well, you know. Yeah. So, you know, to get my crystal ball out and say, you know, are we going to get it? I don't know. I hope we do. I mean, we always hope for, you know, something in the spring. It's nice to get it. You know, we've talked about how that monsoon moisture that we get in July, we don't, it doesn't really help the elk anyway. You know, it's more, it, it helps the deer, but we don't typically see that affect our elk anyway because it comes so late. Um. And, you know, this year we had a pretty weak monsoon. You know, our, our archery season, you know, we're usually, you know, packing rain gear and, and getting wet quite often. And, I mean, it was we, it was dry. I mean, once September rolled around, we got no moisture in Arizona over here or in New Mexico. I think we got one storm in the Gila and, and in New Mexico we got, you know, very just that – a storm here and a little storm there, little storms, and nothing that major monsoon. And it was really hot and really windy, which I don't know if I've ever seen an archery season as windy as it was this year. I mean, it was 20, 30-mile-an-hour sustained winds for all day long. Yeah. And ma- made I think we really talked about that that one podcast out made it, yeah, that's made right. it difficult to hear bulls, and, and it was just a really windy rut. Right. Okay, so for what I'm hearing from you is that 1 in 27 are not near as drought-related um, as a bunch of the other units in Arizona. What I'm hearing from you is we've got pretty good feet on the ground. They will find water. Everything should be okay. You're not expecting a huge change in 1 or 27. No, no. Weather-wise, I think... You know, we're going to, I mean, and I, and I could be completely wrong because, you know, I've, I've, I have these opinions and everyone else has their own opinions. I mean, I just see it. I've looked at this, you know, time and time again and, and tried to compare it from other years. And I just, like I said, I just don't think our mountainous units are as affected. I mean, you know, the game and fish is the one you got to worry about in these units over here compared to the, you know, if, if, you know, that's what you need to be more worried about than, the antler growth coming on is the age class of the bull that you're hunting. So we just shot we just shot a warning shot over the bow of the ACGFD, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shots fired. I mean, I, Shots fired. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's uh, you know, I mean, I hate saying it, but I mean these units in, in the whole state. I mean, you know, we're ever we're right now we're in a, a big battle with hunter opportunity and quality. And everybody's butting heads over this right now. You you see it on social media. You see it all over right now. And you're going to have the opinions of the people who want the trophy class animals, and you're going to see the people who want hunter opportunity. And, I mean, obviously the, the game of fish is leaned 
towards the hunter opportunity in almost every unit in the state. Um, you know, I can say the elk numbers are down. They can say they're up. You know, I can say they need a mandatory harvest report. They can say they don't. I mean, it's there's it can go on and on in that field, you know. And and I think there's a lot of dis you know approval of how things are being ran. And there's opinions flying right now, and everybody's got an opinion about it. So, yeah. Well, and rightfully so. I mean, everybody, you know, like yourself, you've been lived there and and you know been out there trouncing around for a long time so you should have an opinion and you should have you know you should feel passionately about the way you do and you know it's hard to see these units when you've seen them as good as they can be and then you see them where they focus on opportunity a little more over trophy quality and you see the trophy quality go down well right. who doesn't want to see a big bull who doesn't want to see a big buck and i think there's a there's a trade-off there i think i think you know, you look at other states, you look at over-the-counter units in Colorado, and you've got, you know, trophy quality has just come way, way down in a lot of units, and, you know, there's just not as many people hunting. Well, why aren't they? Well, you could argue that, um, you know, people don't get excited over, a, you know, bull with a five-inch brow tine and four points. Like, you know, they like to see the big racks. So, I mean... There's arguments to go around either way. I would like to see him focus more on trophy quality myself. Um, I'm okay with waiting for the tag. I'm okay with our bonus point system and the way it works and, you know, letting other people get tagged and wait your turn. And when you do get a tag, you get a great tag and you get great bugling and, you know, you don't have as much hunter interference and, um, you know, I, I do believe there's a happy medium, but it is hard when you have people with different opinions. It's always hard to manage, and it's hard to see uh, the game and fish, you know, lean in one direction for a while and watch that quality, watch that trophy potential and trophies, you know, all those trophy um, bulls decline. And now you're, you know, you were seeing, you know, 30 or 40 bulls over 350 in a season, and now you're seeing four. You know, it, it's right. tough to swallow. Um, but with that being said, uh, let's talk about um, your forecast here for Unit 1. Um, I'm looking, obviously, Go Hunt Insider uh, is a sponsor of this podcast, and they provide the most accurate draw odds out there. And I'm looking at the archery hunts uh, for Unit 1 and Unit 27, and it looks like for non-resident, it takes 16 points. Uh, to guarantee a tag in Unit 1, and it looks like 15 points to guarantee a tag in Unit 27. Um, compare the archery hunts in both of those units. Um, in, you know, just go through the archery hunts in 1 and 27 and talk about them a little bit. Well, obviously, since the the way the bonus point system works with the percentage of points, I mean, of tags going to high point holders, you know, now that they have this 5% random that everybody gets kicked back into, we're going to start seeing a point creep that we've really never seen in Arizona before where the, the high point holders always dropped off the top in Arizona, but we're going to start to see a creep um, in most of the upper, you know, that in the you know top five units in the state, we're going to start seeing a creep. Um, with those numbers that you just gave, that's obviously in the last two years, that's basically a, a one to two point creep in both of those units. 
Yeah, and it seemed like not too long ago it was like 13, 14, Jeff, and now I was kind of shocked today to look at it and it showed it 16, 15. I'm like, man. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, and it's the creep. It's the random tags now that they're giving. So you've got guys drawing these tags from out of state um, that are getting lucky. and they're, and So really who that hurt is the guys with high points. But the way it worked is that the older gentleman or whoever was putting in for these tags, the state was losing the money off that license because say you're 60 years old, well, you're done. You're not going to put back in for Arizona because you don't want to wait till you're 75 to have a tag. So what they did is by, by giving that 5%, they're giving people hope. And so now they're getting people to at least put back in and buy that license and try to draw this tag. And you know, I mean, I know somebody told me about a sheep guy that drew last year with two bonus points in out-of-stater. Um, you know, these tags are going to, there are going to be tags that are given to random. And if you're, if you're just getting in the game, I guess that's a good thing. But if you've been in the game, <laughs> it's, it doesn't make you too happy, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, with uh, getting back to what we were talking about, you know, the, the, uh, was mainly the forecast, correct? Yep. Well, no, the, talking about Unit 1 archery and Unit 27 archery, oh. just the arch, archery hunt in general, and, and maybe the, the, the similarities of each unit and the differences, like, you know, how does the Unit 1 fair, archery hunt fair compared to the 27? Okay, so Unit 1 to 27, um, obviously Unit 1 is a much milder unit, it's got lots of road access. It's uh, got a lot of open parks, grassland. Um, obviously, it's been burned pretty heavy, uh, you know, six years ago. And uh, the amount of elk in one versus 27 in the rut, you know, I think that unit one has a lot more cows. And so you, you get a, I think it pulls a lot of bulls to unit one um, off different places such, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're even picking up uh, reservation elk that come to one to rut, um, and I'm sure some of our elk go to the res to rut. I mean, it's just the way these elk move, you know. Um, but 27, you're not going to have as large a groups of cows. Um, still has, you know, bull to cow ratios are still, you know, solid there. Um, when you're hunting, I mean, you don't have any issues not, you know, finding elk. It's just finding the age class of bulls you want to hunt. Um, that's all we've really seen you know, a drastic drop-in is the age class. And especially, you know, the trail cams that we run um, really have seen uh, a massive drop-off in the 7- to 8-year-old elk. There's just very, very few of the upper age class bulls that we have compared to what we had, say, five, you know, five years ago. Um, and archery hunt-wise, I mean, I don't put people in for 27 that aren't in excellent condition. You have to be in very good shape to hunt 27 if, if you want to utilize the tag. If, you know, you, I'm not saying you can't hunt it if you're not in the best of shape. There are areas you can hunt, but you're going to have a lot more uh, pressure in those areas. So where we get in and get deep in that unit, you have to be able to, you know, you know, spend, you know, be able to do, you know, five to ten miles a day, you know, on foot and, you know, obviously in archery season, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, archery season is a, is a very action-packed and you're moving and you literally are running bulls down and you're keeping up with them, 
because they're pushing cows and it's just a whole different type of hunting compared to a late late season rifle hunt where the elk are you know just more docile and just sitting on the side of a hill feeding and and kind of you know taking it easy where in the rut it's a completely different thing so it's just a lot more action-packed so 27 having the rough steep canyons you know you glass a bull up and you know he's a thousand yards away but it might take two hours to get to him because of the terrain you know and in unit one you know you're not going to have that you got a lot more of the elk coming and going and moving through these open parks and open timber and and rolling um you know pine forests you know would you say that the biggest bull in unit well in your opinion is the biggest bull if you if you took the biggest bull in unit one and the biggest bull in 27 in your opinion which unit would win out uh unit 27 okay if you took the is is in unit 27 bulls over 370 is there more in 27 or more in unit one That would be, man, it just depends on what time of year you're there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Good answer. And the reason I say, say that is let's because... Let's say rut time. Let's say rut time. Rut time, unit one. Okay. Late you season, bulls 27. Over three, <laughs> okay. If you took bulls over, say, 340, so 340 bulls and bigger... Is there more in 27 or more in one? I'd say that's a pretty even comparison right there with the 340-type bull, a 330 to 340 bull. I think you're going to have more of those bulls in Unit 1, but just because it has a higher you know, ratio of bulls to cows during the rut, uh, just because right. it's got higher numbers of cows. Okay. If you were to pick a better bugling unit, would 1 or 27 be better? Um, I would say 1. Yeah. And that solely goes because of the competition of, of, you know, bulls for, you know, hot cows. You're going to have okay. more bulls, which is, I think that has everything to do with how vocal elk are. Where in 27, sometimes we don't see the rut as heavy as we do in one, and it's because you might have a bull with five or six cows, and one of them's hot, or you know you got a couple of hot cows, and there's just not a lot of other bulls to give him competition where he's at. Where you come to unit one, you might have 30 cows, and you have numerous hot cows, and you've got five more bulls chousing those cows, and you get those scrums a little more, which makes those bulls you know, angry and, and, you know, the, the rut gets a lot more violent because of the ratio. You know, there's anytime you pile in more bulls on top of hot elk, that's when you're going to get those, you know, those nutso days of the, you know, the rut. And, uh, you know, we haven't seen, we don't see it like we used to near as much as we used to because I think our cow numbers are way down compared to what they used to be. I mean, they're not going to tell you that. Game of Fish doesn't say that. They say the elk numbers are their highest they've ever been right now, which I totally disagree with. So, 
Let me ask you a question. In Unit 1, 2B, 2C, there's 300 permits. In Unit 27, there's 225. So there's 75 less permits in 27. You have more road access in Unit 1, less road access in Unit 27. From a hunter pressure standpoint, comparing Unit 1 to 27, even though 27 has 75 less, does it feel the same since there aren't as many roads in 27 and it kind of congregates the people? Yeah, it's exactly what you say. The reason why is because 27, you're going to feel like there's a lot more hunters than that is because the bulk of the people are going to hunt in three areas. And those three areas are where all the cows are. And that's why you're going to feel like there's way more people in the unit at the same time. Um, that's why when we hunt 27, we try to go to certain places to get away from that pressure. Now, if there's, if there's a big giant bull that we know is in one of those areas and we do decide to hunt him, um, you know, we have to put up with, you know, lots of people hunting the same groups of elk. And, and you do see that in, in one area especially. Um, but, yeah, that 225 is, is still a lot of tags because they congregate you know, in the northern part of the unit, I mean, in the, yeah, the northern part of the unit, where the southern part of the unit in 27, you know, doesn't have near the, the pressure just because there's a lot less elk. And okay. in unit one, um, you know, with 350, is that what it is, 350 or 300? No, three, 300. Yeah, 300. I get the numbers confused, so, because everything switches, you know. Yeah, um, I think it was 350 three, at one time. I think they've backed it down to 300. Yeah, it's back down to 300. Um, you know, it was 150 for most of my life. It was 150 uh, That was tag. my next question I was going to ask you is, you know, it was 150 forever. Obviously, the, the unit burned. I feel like they probably feel like there's more places to hunt. They probably feel like there's more elk, and they've doubled the numbers. But I remember forever, one was 150 tags. Right. And it yeah, probably it's, feels... Uh, horrible compared to what it used to feel to you <laughs> yeah it's um it it is definitely depressing i mean it's a it is not what it once was i mean i've killed i don't even know i couldn't even count how many bulls we've killed in in one in 27 and uh i mean it's just not it's just not the same unit it once was just solely because of the amount of people that are on the hunts um and and what is really dissatisfying to me is that I've been applying hunters for years in these units and with the promise that this is an excellent tag to get and, and the rut's really hardcore and the archery hunts, you don't have to contend with people. Well, over time, not that it makes me a liar because it really has nothing to do with me, but now I'm having to change my tone to some of these hunters and I'm having to say, okay, Things have changed a bit. It's not what it once was. The, the tag numbers have doubled. Um, you are going to run into people from, from time to time. And, uh, you know, the average size of the bull killed is not what it was at one time as well. So, you know, on average, Unit 1 and 27, on average, are the upper end is a 330 to 340 bull hunt. Now, does that mean you don't have bigger bulls? No, there's always going to be some, you know, bulls that make it and get some age class. 
bulls that cross over from different areas and, and come into other areas. So you do see those big bulls still. It's not like there's not big bulls there. It's still an excellent hunt. Um, but you're just not going to see, you know, what it was. So I, I have to explain that to people that have been applying for these hunts for years under the assumption of what it once was. Right. You know, Jay, one good way to look at this is, you know, in the late hunt, in four days we killed my outfit, we killed seven bulls in four days. And we killed about a 325, 330 average. Killed a couple of bulls, one bull over, you know, pushing 360, another bull over 350. And then everything else was just, you know, 325, 330 kind of bulls. You know, you look at that five years ago, our average was probably pushing over 350. We shot nine bulls four years ago, and our average was probably over 350. That's and the function of age, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's just a simple, the age class has been, the, the top of the age class has been knocked off. Now, obviously, but you're going to have a good... has that mainly come from the late hunt? I mean, yes, we talk yes, about it solely hunts, has come from the late. That, come, yeah, I mean, for, for a long time, the late hunt pressure has been huge. Late yeah, the late hunt weird. pressure with everybody having high-dollar glass and 1,000-yard rifles has just, it's, it's just, and with doubling the tags. That's where I don't get it. It's just the elk have become easier to hunt because, you know, they're sitting ducks in these burns and everybody's shooting 1,000 yards, whether they can or can't. And, you know, it's just, it's really knocked. And without having mandatory harvest reports, we don't really know what's legit and what's not. We don't have checkpoints. We don't have any way of really knowing how many elk have been taken. Do and you, if you have 460 you, tags in 27 and you kill 50%, but I'm guessing it's more like 60%, and, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of elk to be taken out of the woods every year. Let me ask you a question. Have you heard the Game and Fish's response to why there isn't mandatory check-in? Yeah, they, they've, so I've, I've asked them um, why, and they say that their numbers, you know, because you have, they're going to have people that, don't, that aren't going to send it in, are not going to do the mandatory harvest report anyway, and then they use the excuse also of saying, that, well, people might lie on it or whatever. And I just don't agree with it because New Mexico has a mandatory harvest report. Um, and if you don't put in, I mean, if you don't uh, turn in your, your information, you don't when you put in apply. the next year, you, you get charged for it, and you still have to apply. Even the next year, if you want to put in, you still have to do the, the harvest report. The problem I see with harvest reports mandatory is even if you had a mandatory harvest report, who is going to police that to actually make sure that's legit? Because really, in the end, they can tell you what you want. We really don't know, we'll never know really exactly what's, I just, I'm, I mean, it's sad to say I just don't trust the whole system. You know, because you can't tell me that, ten, you know, 15 years ago our elk herd was at, you know, 25,000, and now they say at 65,000. I don't know what the true numbers are, but I know it's something Something How like hard that, is it you know. Though, to set up a station in Springerville or or somewhere, you know, that's, that's in Alpine or somewhere, and say, when you kill an elk, you have to bring it by here. It's. I mean, I remember in the Kiabab, they used to have a mandatory check station. Nope. You had to bring your gear. Like you, 
It, well, Jay, it, you know what happened on the Kayabab? That went away. No, I know, but, but why? now it. I don't. But now it's back, isn't it? I'm not sure. Well, I heard I, it I came just, back. I, but the reason I yeah. think is because the Kayabab started getting it was awful, and the numbers were down, and the hunting was terrible. And I think they took the harvest report out. I mean, the the check stations out because they really didn't want you to know really the true numbers. <laughs> How bad? And then they didn't. Yes, and now that it's starting, the Kayabab is starting to come back. They put, I heard they put the check station back in. Now I could be wrong because I know we're we're, we're going to start we're going to start hunting the Kayabab again because we hunted it for years. We're going to start going back uh, because it has come back around. But you know there was there was a few years in there that it just was terrible, and we kind of got out of hunting it. But we're going to start hunting it again, and uh, I don't know. I mean. You know, somebody put a, a a post up on Facebook right after the late hunt, um, a local uh, friend, and everybody bombarded, got on there and was saying their opinions about, and it got pretty heated, and one of the Game and Fish commissioners got on there, and, and I mean, everybody lit him up pretty hard. I mean, I, I respect the guy. He's a good friend of mine, and... Uh, you know, obviously, I have a different opinion on 80 to 90% of what they say versus, you know, because they use the science side of it, and they use the the biologist side of it, and the funding side of it, where we think it's, you know, you know, a you know, a, a revenue-based, you know, driven system, which they say it isn't, and that the money's going into many, you know, a lot of other things, and it's just a really, you know, there's a lot of disagreement right now with the the way everything's being handled. And one of the higher-ups in the Game of Fish saw me in the post office the other day and said, hey, I heard about that, you know, that, that post. You know, Jeff, is maybe we ought to get together sometime and talk about, you know, if there's something we can do. And I'm like, man, it needed to be done two years ago. What's done's done. They did it to 3A, 3C. Now they're doing it to these units over here, 1 and 27. And... Yeah, it's pretty sad. I mean, it it really is. I mean, they, you know, you just can't double the numbers in a in the in a unit and not expect it to just get you know to right. get beat up. Yeah. You know, I mean, we had, you know, I I just it's so the age class really the trail cams tell us a lot because, you know, five six years ago where you had twenty four hundred inch bulls on trail cam and now you have one. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and then that 370, 360 to 3, you know, 80 class bull, there's just very few of those compared. And then you got a big wad of 290 to 310s. You know, on the late hunt, when I was saying we killed seven bulls, we saw I saw 125 bulls in four days. Okay, so I saw 100 and, and I saw four bulls over 350. And then after you go off sampling. of that, yeah. After you go off of that, I mean, you know, you know, a good bull here and a good bull there, and you can see well, what the outfitters are killing. Don't you think on the late hunts, not only are they killing more bulls, and I'd have to look at the harvest numbers to tell you exactly. And I'm just speaking. Yeah, in but general, how are you going to compare those harvest numbers? That's all a guess. <laughs> I know, but also with that being said, they're also killing better bulls because they can now see them in those burns. So with okay. the high-powered optics, 
and with the ability to shoot a long ways, they're hammering the better bulls because before when there was lots of timber and you couldn't glass like you can now, when you saw a bull, a lot of times people just shot a bull. Now, they're, like you said, you looked at 125 bulls in four days. You guys obviously shot the better bulls you saw. So in other words, from a hunting standpoint, it's easier to sit there and go, okay, that bull, that bull, that bull, that bull. Okay, I'm going to shoot this one. So you're, you know, you're selectively harvesting the better racked bull, I would assume. And yes. over time, when your late hunt, not only, even if your late hunt harvest numbers stayed exactly the same, but your age class of bull harvest was higher, ultimately, in a couple of years, you're going to see your late hunt bulls or your late, your older age class bulls are gone because people have been able to sit and glass long range in open burns and pick out the biggest racked bull and kill it. A lot of times the biggest racked bull is the most mature, and so you're whacking the most mature bulls. Oh, definitely. So that's, that's spot on. But what, 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 with what you're saying... That is correct. That's why that average that we have been killing for the last five years every year has dropped size-wise right. because we are killing the biggest bulls we can find. Right. So out of the and 125 it, you saw, the seven that you killed are the better ones that you found. Maybe not the best, but they're the better ones. You try and kill the best ones, but maybe before when you couldn't see as well and there was a 300-inch bull you probably had your late hunter shoot it because you couldn't see 15 other bulls at the same time and go, well, there's one. Let's pick the best one out of 15 that we see this morning. Okay, let's shoot that one. So over right. time, over time, you know, it doesn't take very long when you have good hunters like you guys and some of the, you know, the other outfitters and such up there. Like you guys have whacked the older age class bulls. The better racked bulls, the older age class bulls are gone. Not gone, right. but they're, there's a lot less of them. Yeah, there's a lot less of them. strictly from a timber standpoint, like you can see them, right? That's what makes you so successful on those late hunts is you guys can cherry pick through them. Yeah, we are cherry picking. And, you know, I put a post on my Instagram and I said, oh, here's a bull we just passed up. And everybody's like, well, that bull's going to die. If anyone else sees it, they're going to kill it. <laughs> I mean, it was right. a really nice bull, but it just wasn't what we were looking for. And I try to push... My, my hunters to, to shooting the upper age class. That's what, I mean, I pride myself in trying to push people to shoot the better bulls that we have. I do it in New Mexico. I do it in Arizona. It's now not about to shoot The better bulls or the more mature bulls? The better racked bulls or the... Well, typically, obviously, we're looking for big antlers, you know. We're looking right, for, right. And, and most of the time with big antlers means older, older bulls. Right, right, right. I mean... It's not that you don't see an older bull that has bad genetics that's heavy in an old bull, and we don't kill him because there's a big pretty bull standing right next to him that outscores him by 20 inches. Right. You know, you see and that And not well. many people will tell you that there, there's a gnarly five points, it's all bladed, and, you know, he's old, and there's a pretty six standing right next to him. Most people will shoot the pretty six. Yeah, Okay. that's right. I got, I got, I got a question for you now. Unit tw this year... September 28th through October 4th, in, they flip-flop it every year. This year, 
27 is early rifle and unit one is muzzleloader. From a date standpoint, September 28th through October 4th, from a quality of hunt standpoint, bugling, you know, whole thing, how do those dates stack up? Those are the best dates you'll ever get for a trophy hunt. Okay. From a bugling, just chaos. My, my opinion, my opinion, the last week of September to the 5th of October is the best rut action you'll get. Okay. My opinion is always that that late, that late September, on average, that's when you see that really hardcore rut action is just that, that really that last week of September can be really, really good. Okay. Now, and then we go ahead. You know, obviously this year the archery dates are the good archery dates. You know, it's they start it starts on the fourteenth. That's the later date. You know, when it starts on the ninth, I hate that date because it's just always, you know, for five or six days it's just slow and then it starts to pick up. And then you don't really get into it till the twentieth, you know, but but when you start on the fourteenth the bulls are starting to rut pretty good, and then it starts getting better as that hunt goes on. And the last week, the archery hunt's really good, and then the, the week it's over that goes into the trophy hunt. So with the, the, hunt, the archery hunt starting on the 14th this year and that trophy hunt following, the last week of archery season and that trophy hunt are going to be rocking. So Especially, don't you think, since it's a full moon on the 25th of September, it's just they're just going to be going nuts. So. Yeah, we're going to have... Yeah, the moon's going to be way different next year, this this season, than it was this year. This year, the moon was awful, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So Okay, with those dates, with those dates, though, don't you think, and with the full moon and with just probably them going nuts during those dates, um, broken points are going to be a problem this year? No, I mean... It, I, I have a whole different opinion on broken points too. <laughs> so okay, let's hear broken, broken point bulls. So we had a lot of broken bulls this year, lots of broken bulls. And last year we had very little broken bulls. We had a extremely wet summer last year coming in to the bulls shedding their velvet and getting into, into the, you know, into the season this year, in New Mexico and stuff, we had a real spotty monsoon. Was not so. I think that density of antlers have a has a lot to do with summer moisture and summer feed. And when that, I'm not saying bulls being big and long. I'm saying density, the density of the mass of the antler on the inside of the antler when they're growing. So in other words, how heavy and how strong it is. Yes. On dry years, I, you see weak bulls. On wet years, you see strong, strong antler bulls where you don't see as many broken points. This year, the summer we had, you know, we had a real, real kind of a pathetic monsoon with a real spotty range. You know, we were going, you know, six, seven days without any rain where typically we get rain every day. Well, this year you couldn't imagine, and then this was both states, I mean, New Mexico was a broken mess, and so was Arizona. By the late hunts, it was it was awful. I mean, you literally could not find a bull that wasn't broken. I mean, it was lots of broken points. And last year, you didn't really see that at all. And you know, I'm sure that the rut has something to do with that as well as how how 
you know, how crazy did the rut get? You know, in the first, uh, in archery season, we didn't see any broken points in archery in New Mexico. And then by that first October hunt that we hunt, that, you know, that starts over there, we saw piles of broken bulls by that hunt. So they rutted extremely hard after archery season in New Mexico. And that's where we saw lots of broken bulls. So I don't know. I mean, as a joke, I've always said that the rainwater on the velvet makes the antlers hard. <laughs> I know I that like sounds it. stupid, but it's, it's always a joke. I always say, you know, I think when the, rain, the rainwater on these, this, these velvet bulls makes those antlers super, super dense. Well, I think there's something to it for sure. Um, when you look at 27 as the early rifle and unit one as a muzzleloader, just stepping back, if I said you could have one or the other to kill the biggest bull, which would you take this year? Um, I would take 27 for me personally, but I wouldn't with a hunter. So you would take it for yourself personally because you would be willing to go through the punishment, but for a hunter, you would take the unit one muzzy hunt over the 27 early rifle for a client. Yes. Okay. Taking, because everybody thinks they, I mean, you know, everybody says they can keep up or they can do the rough, but until you actually put them in it and make them do it, you know, I, I think back to my 27 archery hunt, you know, year before last when we had our two tags, both you and I, my 27 hunt punished me so bad that I literally had to give up on the bull that I was hunting. I could not hunt him anymore because my legs wouldn't take it. I couldn't go in after him. I was done. I hunted him for eight days, and I, had to, I threw in the towel. I could not hunt him anymore because I, my legs would not make the, the, the climb to get into where he was. And when I went into the other area, it was a much easier area to hunt and killed the other bull that I still killed. That area was just a lot more road accessible, and I could get in there and hunt, um, and I didn't have to hike as much. But I was so physically spent coming from Utah and then doing the 27 hunt of where the bull was that I was trying to kill that I finally pretty much had to give up on him because I just couldn't keep up with him because he was traveling so far from his, his bedding ground to his feeding ground, and I just couldn't keep up with him anymore. Good stuff. That's good stuff. And everybody, um, you know, every, you know, that, and so with clients, you know, of course, I ask a lot of times, you know, what kind of shape are you in? And, I, and when I ask people that, I really mean that. I need to know what kind of physical shape you're in because it's very important when we're putting people in for the draws that we understand what you can do. Now, you know, talking about this is interesting. You know, me being a hunter and not just a guide, an outfitter, where I love to hunt myself, I didn't even put, I put in, I didn't put unit one or 27 as my first archery choice this year. I picked another unit solely because I feel like I can go to that unit and find a bigger bull that I'm looking for easier and kill it. And, and the one in 27 was my second and third choice but I just put in another unit this year solely because I feel like I can find an older age class bull in that unit. Now, if I drew a 1 or 27 myself or with clients, it's still a great hunt, and I still want to put you know, hunters in and hunt the units because I know we can still kill 340 to 350 bulls on the upper end. And, you know, so 
I, t I take, I tell my hunters one thing, but I might do something different, or I might have a specific hunter that has hunted with me before that I know can do certain things and doesn't have cap I mean, limitations. But you have, to, you have to understand what everybody's limitations are because of that, because when you really get after it and you really hunt 14 days as hard as you can go, you know how physically draining it can be, Jay. Don't you also think there's an aspect of that, and you've seen it probably where you have a physical specimen of a person but a mental midget, and you might almost take a happy medium where the guy's in just pretty good shape, but he's tougher than anything and he has a great attitude, that can overcome some of the physicality that, you know, having a super mentally tough and knowing that it's going to be a grind. I mean, people listening to the podcast need to understand that if you're on a, you know, you got a 14-day archery season and you're going to hunt in Arizona, if you think it's going to be easy, you are sorely mistaken. Now, granted, is it going to be like Idaho or backcountry in Wyoming or you know, even Colorado for that matter, from a physical standpoint, probably not, even though Jeff would tell you there's places in 27 that are every bit as tough. But it's also mentally draining when you know that you've got this great tag and that you, you know, you're passing bulls in order to try and shoot a certain bull that you wanted, you know, bull of a lifetime. Like, I would rather have someone that's just super, like, not, you know, a mental midget. I would rather have someone that's like totally mentally tough and like, you know, you get a freaking rainstorm that, you know, washes everything out below your evening instead of throwing a tantrum. They're like, man, wasn't that lightning cool? Let's move on tomorrow and keep charging. Um, there's so much of the mental aspect, I think, that's every bit as important as the physical aspect. With that being said, you can't take someone that's, you know, a flatlander that's a lump that, you know, just can't do it. But I mean, I'd almost rather have someone that's in pretty good shape but is really mentally tough and has a great attitude over the guy that's just a physical specimen but, you know, cries at the first sign of adversity. Well, obviously, you've guided a lot. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say when I say that because you are 100% correct. Um, with that said, you obviously have guided a lot because the mental toughness will overshadow the physical specimen of a man any day of the week because I've made, I've made that physical specimen of a man cry and I've had 65, 70-year-old men that could step, step for step with me just because they were just physically, mentally tough dudes and, yeah. that, and, and had a good attitude. And the good attitude of hunters when they come overshadows anything else. I, I, every day that I think about different people that I have guided over the years, that mental attitude of people, and it just makes them good people for one thing, but they're just always, because you know as well as I do, you're going to have your down days and you're going to have your up days. There's going to be, that's why if you're trophy hunting, People call and they say, Jeff, I want to book a five-day hunt. I say, okay, you're going to shoot the first 325 or 330 bull we put in front of you. Now, if you want to kill 350 and above, you need to hunt 10 to 14 days. Right. You know, More if you time. can afford it, you need to hunt 10 to 14 days. Trophy hunting takes time. Right. Lots of stars have to align, and lots of things have to happen to kill that upper-age class bull. 
and and being able to you know and sometimes you get a guy that's got both he's got the physical attributes and he's also got the mental attributes and when you get that you can just about you know pick and choose what you're going to do on a hunt because of that and and you do get that from time to time um you know I just uh, posted on Instagram yesterday a, a picture of Nick Albonico. He's a guy from California that hunts with us, and he's killed some really good bulls, killed a giant bull in Nevada, killed a big bull in Montana last year, um, killed two really good bulls with us. You know, he's a, physically, he's in excellent shape, and he's just a, a super, you know, guy that when it comes to his mental, you know, the mental side, he's just, hey, man, we didn't get him today. We'll get him tomorrow. We'll... We'll be on them, and, and uh, even when I've been down, or, ah, oh, this crap, I wish this wouldn't have happened, or whatever, he's like, ah, oh, hey, man, that's hunting, you know? And when yeah. you get people like that that understand the gig, it just makes, first off, it it's makes huge. guiding a lot more enjoyable, and it just makes their hunt better, because, you know, look at you in Utah when you hunted, and think of the ups and downs you got hunting that big bull. Yeah. And, and the people you're associated with and the people that you were around you know, they, they don't have, you know, we don't, we can't make things happen just because. Right. Things have to be correct and things have to go right for things to happen the way they need to happen. And, the, you know, it's yeah, beyond I mean, our sometimes control. The sun shines, sometimes the sun shines on you bright and sometimes it doesn't shine on you at all and you just kind of have to take each, you know, take it for what it is and keep plugging away because, I mean, you you know, you can't make it happen. You just got to do the best you can, and sometimes it happens, and sometimes it doesn't. Right. You know, when I was in 27 on that on that hunt, uh, my archery hunt, the last time I saw the big bull that I was hunting, I chased him. Um, he didn't know I was on him, but he was pushing some cows up this same ridge he'd been going up for multiple days. And the last time I, I saw him, I, I was... I was trying to get up in front of him, and finally I just, I was, I was spent. I was done. I mean, there was, I mean, I was pouring sweat. I was dehydrated. I was fully done. I fell over on the side of the hill. I threw a spot and scope up, and he walked through a little opening, and I caught a glimpse of him with my phone scope, and that was the last I saw him. And I just, I just rolled over and looked in the sky and said, well, I got beat because I'm done. There's no way I can go up there now. And, uh, I packed up, and I remember how long it took me to get out of there that night compared to normal. It took me, I could walk out in an hour and a half, and it, it literally took me three hours because it was, it was, I was just so physically spent and um, mentally draining. It made me mad because I, that was the bull that I was wanting, but you have to, <laughs> at the end of the day, there's only so much you can do, you know, and, yeah. and, I just said, hey, you know, it's not that I threw the towel and I didn't give up on the hunt. I knew other areas I could go hunt and still be successful. And and I just, but it, it's hard, you know. It's It can be very physically demanding trophy hunting and trying to kill, you know, that upper age class animal. And it's like that in any hunt. It's not just elk hunting. It's, it's any hunting, you know. I know when we went to the Yukon and we were hunting and, you know, uh, I took a really good client with me to go, and he hunted doll sheep, and I was hunting mountain caribou. We had the same same thing there. We had to pack our pack for 10 days. We were backpacking, and 
it got pretty demanding at times and really physical and and it makes for an enjoyable you know part of the hunt especially afterwards you can look back on that and it gives you some sense of accomplishment and that type of hunting isn't for everybody and you know obviously that's why there's a lot of hunts that are you know people are are in into that kind of stuff and some people aren't and that's why it's important that you discuss with every client on on his abilities and his uh you know i always ask people you know what is you know what is your um we've talked about it before jay uh realistic expectations of what you're expecting i try to get everybody to tell me that because if you as an outfitter do not pair that hunter up with his expectations he's going to be um he's going to you're going to fall short of what he came to do right and it's important that you understand each hunter's abilities because you don't want to put him in an area that he can't come and fulfill his dream because it, it's going to end bad for you and it's going to end bad for him. Yeah, there's no upside for you as an outfitter to take someone that has expectations that are too high, for sure. Yeah, I um, learned that early. I, like I did that a few times. <laughs> Yeah, it only takes once or twice, and you learn that pretty quick. Um, I want to take just a second here and thank the listeners for listening to this podcast, but I want to, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. I've talked about Go Hunt Insider, talked about the draw odds for Unit 1 and 27, uh, and want to remind the listeners, if you're not a Go Hunt Insider member, you can go to gohunt.com forward slash Scott. By signing up, you automatically get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card, and then you also have access to all of the draw odds for the Western states, and you can look in each one of these units and see the guaranteed number of points it takes to draw, et cetera, uh, harvest statistics, and, and what have you. Uh, go check out GoHunt.com. Become an insider member. I want to thank them for their sponsorship. Also, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. If you're at the SEI show uh, here or if you're going to be at the Western Hunting Expo, go to the Kuyu booth. Uh, look up Jason Harrison, the founder and the uh, uh, CEO of Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Tell him you're a podcast listener. If you have any questions about the Kuyu gear, uh, get him and his staff to show you uh, the gear. Uh, also, phonescope.com. Uh, Cheston Davis, use the JScott16 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all phone scope adapters. And the Outdoorsman, the Optics Authority, uh, they are at SCI right now. Uh, use the JScott promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount. Uh, they are the Optics Authority. They're located in Arizona, uh, formerly of Phoenix, now of Fountain Hills. But you can go to Outdoorsman's.com as well and use that JScott promo code. I want to thank those four sponsors uh, for sponsoring this podcast and making it possible. Um, Jeff, I want to finish on the late rifle hunt. Uh, first and foremost, these late rifle hunts like we talked about, I'm sure it's bittersweet for you because um, you know that it's wiping out, in essence. It's, it's killing your older age class bulls. Um, and as long as the game and fish continues to offer tags, being an outfitter in that unit, obviously you've got to take your hunters and do the best you can. Um, it looks like unit one takes 11 points and unit 27 takes 10 points. 
from a quality of hunt standpoint, would you say you would rather have the one hunt or the 27 late hunt? Okay, so that that goes to I, me personally for size. I would want to hunt 27. Okay. Um, we killed last year. Uh, we killed our 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 better bulls in 27. Um, I, I mean, it was pretty much a, a wash across the board. I mean, the the bulls that we killed in one and the bulls that we killed in 27 were pretty much the same kind of bull. But if if you know, if you come, I mean, I would say knowing from what the outfitters killed and personal people and the bigger bulls came out of 27 last year in the late hunt, not unit one. Um, do, now, do, let me ask you a question of that real fast. Do, do, do bulls migrate out of one into 27 and do bulls migrate from, New, like is 27 kind of a melting pot of bulls come to 27 in those late, in those later months? Um, since this, the, the burn, I think a lot of that has changed. And, and yes, I think a lot of bulls go back into 27, uh, after the rut. And I, and I also see unit 27 picking up bulls from other areas, such as maybe the reservation or, um, you know, maybe crossing over out of New Mexico and coming back into 27. I'm not saying that it's the, because you're obviously getting bulls that leave 27 and do the same thing. You know, I know I know of a specific bull that the only place this bull could live, he's got to live on the on the reservation. And most of you know, and he summers in Arizona. I mean, in 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 27, and he and he the rest of the year he lives in on the reservation. During the hunting season, he's on the reservation. He cannot be in 27, or this bull would be dead for sure, 100 percent. And unit one, you know. You, I see a lot of crossover as well. I saw a couple. I've seen a couple of bulls killed in 27 and deep in 27 that rutted in unit one. And of course, they're big bulls because they're bulls we know about. Right. And then uh, you know there was a four a 400 inch bull. I think he's like 401 or something that was shot in 27 on the late hunt this year. Um. Me or neither of the friends that run trail cams together or share information, none of us knew about that bull. And no one had him on trail cam early. Nobody had him late. The bull literally showed up the week before the late hunt. And and um, I know somebody that had found him before the hunt, and they didn't kill him. Um, some, you know, uh, some hunters, I, I, I think they were from phoenix or something they they killed the bull and i think the bull's 401 404 something like that and uh that bull was never has you know that's not a bull that anyone knew about probably a res bull huh yeah that's all i can think and where he i know where he where he was killed and um it makes sense that that bull would have come come across and come into that area i mean it was pretty deep still in 27 so it kind of makes me wonder you know I think there's a lot about these bulls that people don't realize how much they do travel. And trail cams have really shown us that these elk really do move and move a lot in some areas. Yeah. And what's funny, in, in, in New Mexico, 
I have areas where bulls don't move at all. And then a unit literally across the road, I have bulls that, that go 15 to 20 miles between rut and where they are. So it's, it's really interesting to hear the stories of, of, you know, where bulls are killed or where they summer or where they, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of movement that I think happens that a lot of people don't realize, you know. That's all good stuff. Um, that's just, that's just so, all good stuff. Well, with another uh, thing, with the right. unit one, like you said, that unit one late hunt, you know, I always put our older gentlemen, anybody that we have in the hunt that is mobility impaired a little bit, not that they're handicapped or anything. I'm just saying they can't go, you know, quite as hard as someone else. I definitely try to draw them a tag in unit one over 27 because we can get them into an area in a truck, obviously, and, and make a quarter mile walk to, to our glassing areas versus 27 where we need to make a couple mile walk to get to our glassing areas. Yeah. Yeah, so, and don't you think that's, I mean, that's probably the reason why 27 takes less points. It only takes 10 points as, a, as opposed to, you know, one takes 11 just from a access and, you know, physicality standpoint. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, that's, that's exactly why. And then, you know, when we talk about the larger bull being killed in 27, 27 being rough and rugged, there's always going to be those nooks and crannies that bulls are able to hide. And not that Unit 1 doesn't have those nooks and crannies, but, uh, you know, every hunt in the state is different. I mean, you look at 3A, 3C. Let's use it as a comparison. Obviously, it's got a great trophy hunt. It's got a great archery hunt. But when you come to the late hunt, a lot of those elk are leaving and going back into the canyon country on the res to winter. Yeah. And the late hunt can be a terrible hunt in 3A, 3C. Yeah, and, not and enough, the elk are gone pretty much. The bulls are yeah. gone. So, so you know, if, you know we understand that because we're residents and we've, we've hunted these units and we get that. But, you know, I had a guy last year that called and said, hey, I drew 3A3C, and he's in the middle of his hunt, and he was just totally getting his butt kicked and said, I haven't seen any bulls. And I said, well, how many points did you have? And he said, I had, you know, 15 points, and I drew this tag against I'm like, I didn't want to oh. tell him and be mean, but I was like, that's not a hunch you should have put in for with 15 points. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, he was just really having a hard time, and I ended up leading him in an area that he did shoot a bull, and it was a, you know, a 280 bull, but he said, I did kill a bull where you told me to go, and uh, it's just a tough hunt, you know. So that's why in both states, Arizona and New Mexico, there's certain hunts we do at certain times of the year where you won't even find us in that unit at, at other times because we just don't hunt hunts in areas where we can't produce that kind of bull. Makes sense. So, All right, I want to conclude on how's um, hunt hard gear going for you. Well, it's going good. Um, it's we got a lot of stuff we're trying to expand, and obviously it's a very competitive industry. Um, there's some pretty big giants in this industry that are that are cranking right now. Um, obviously, we know the success of Kuyu and you know Sitka, and and uh, there's a lot of other you know there's lots of clothing manufacturers coming on. Um, so for what what we are doing and what our brand 
uh, is presented and what you know it, it's doing well. Um, obviously, we would like it to you know do a little better at times. You know, obviously, there's like I said, a lot of competition, but for what we do with our brand, with the Hunt Hard brand, um, also the clothing and apparel, which is more novelty and and uh, you know it's it's doing very good. So good. Where can people find you? Uh, they can find us on uh, hunthard.com. That's our, you know, that of course will be, you know, our gear website, uh, you know, where our clothing, apparel, packs, and equipment. And then uh, there's an outfitter section on the website uh, that you can find, you know, the outfitting side of, of what we do. And then uh, Facebook, you know, with Hunt Hard as well. And then Instagram is Hunt Hard underscore gear. Okay. And that's our uh, our Instagram side. And then any anytime you know you can, if anybody has questions or needs brochures or anything, they can call me direct uh, or text me on my cell phone, which all the information is on the web or or uh, to get a hold of me to get any information you need about hunts or call me direct to to talk, you know, about strategies for hunts uh, for both you know Arizona or New Mexico. Sounds great, and when we start talking about New Mexico, I'll have to have you on again. Um, are, are you going to be at the Western Hunt Expo, or are you going to be at any shows coming up? Um, if, if um, no, I, I've, I've been to Sacramento and I, Washington. I did a show, and um, I'm going to, I'll be in Portland this next weekend uh, at a show there in Portland, and it's the same time as the Western Hunt Expo. Okay. And... Uh, I've kind of got, I haven't, I used to do the Western Hunt Expo. I've kind of got out of the Western Hunt Expo for a couple of reasons. And um, it's not that it's, you know, it's a good show. Um, it's just become a different show compared to booking hunts. Um, you know, the gear side, I, I would like to take it back to the Western Hunt Expo. But the outfitting side at the Western Hunt Expo is, um, it's just a different, it's a different crowd. It's become a different show for booking hunts. But the gear side, I would definitely like to take back to that show. Sounds so. good, man. Well, thanks for all your insight and um, appreciate your candid approach and uh, being honest with us and giving us your opinion. That's uh, always uh, of great value. And uh, uh, congrats on your Mexico uh, bucks. And, uh, yeah, thanks for spending time here with us. Good deal. Thanks for having me, Jay. All right, buddy. Sounds good. God bless. I'll catch you later. Okay. Talk to you later. Thanks. Right.